0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry, and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure.
1: Now that I've got to a position where I'm far more comfortable and maybe it's mature, I think it's bring your whole self to work.
0: I'm talking to Julianne Antrobus who joined PA Consulting last year to lead their nuclear growth strategy and is now their global head of nuclear. Julianne also sponsors PA's Women's Network and works with women in nuclear on their leadership program. She lives in Southport with her husband David or Mr A and two children at primary school age Oliver and Lucy and there's a lot of homeschooling going on at the moment so <laughs> welcome Just Julianne. a little bit it's lovely to see you thanks for joining me
1: oh thank you Andrew I'm, I'm delighted to be here great um great opportunity to catch up with you
0: fantastic so we were chatting early you grew up in Manchester and then the family moved to Southport to start a hotel business so you grew up in a hotel in Southport and went to school at Christ the King secondary uh tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up there and what you were like at school
1: Southport I don't know if you've ever traveled Southport it's a beautiful part of the, the country in the northwest on the coast um not a hill to be seen unfortunately for my husband who's a, a keen mountain climber um but um, nonetheless it's a, a beautiful spa um town and yeah my my parents were quite ambitious I suppose as a, as a couple themselves they set out probably best part of 40 years ago to um, have their own business and a hotel was what they wanted. Um, it was a close call whether it was going to be Blackpool or Southport. Southport won the day um, and it was um, it was great. I, I, one day I'm going to write a book about growing up in a hotel. My dad and my mum and I lose many hours of reflecting on the stories of, of, of a hotel but you know joking aside um It's where I learned how to work hard. And actually, you know, my parents, it was a 24 seven job for them until, you know, they'd worked hard enough that we could stop and have holidays and we could have Christmases where the hotel could close and it was just family. But, you know, the first kind of five to 10 years of the business, they really had to to work it. Um, but I was everything from the pot cleaner to the changing of the beds to um, serving dinner and breakfast. And then they had this genius idea of where the money was to be made was in a bar. So then they built a bar within the hotel, and yeah, I, I then had to serve um, in the bar as well. So, but my my dad was very generous, and he used to give me an hourly rate for working in the hotel, and I I absolutely made a fortune in those in those early years in my piggy bank um but you know I, I've always had that kind of hard work ethic and I think it probably comes from my both my parents you know um and it's um it played it stayed with me at school no doubt you know I um, was a little bit some of my colleagues and one of them who I hold dear um used to call me a right swat um and it was it was just because I just wanted to do well You know, um, I was curious, I was hardworking, I was diligent. Um, You know, my teachers always said um, middle of the road when I was at primary and then I went to secondary and I just seemed to flourish. And then, you know, came into my own um, later on when I went to university, etc. But, yeah, school, I loved school. Um, You know, I um, my big thing was music. Um, to love me, you have to love my music, which is very eclectic, as my husband knows.
0: God, what's on, what are you listening to at the moment?
1: Oh, well, I can be everything from country. I mean, you know, people won't know this, but like, I, you know, we've just had the sad death of um, poor Charlie Pride, he was a great country and Western singer. And I have been to the home of Charlie Pride in a place called Sledge, Mississippi when i was 16 with my parents on a road trip around nashville tennessee new orleans memphis tennessee and so my music can go anything from yeah um charlie and country to um yeah o- oasis and take that
0: oh i saw oasis in manchester so.
1: <laughs> i did many years ago like many years ago um, but but when I grew up, when I was growing up, I actually, um, my thing outside of school was, was music. I, I played in a brass band um, and I played in a brass band for about 10 years. And it was the St. John's Silver Band in Southport. And um, I played the flugelhorn. Which is a, a beautiful, beautiful instrument. It, it, it's played in a lot of jazz um, orchestras, etc. But it's a really deep, mellow, beautiful sound, not not harsh like a, a trumpet, you know. Um, and I love the fact that you know, being in the band, we went round the country on competitions. We went round the country, you know, I, to 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 play um, various places. And um, you know, been to the Albert Hall, played on TV as a as a youngster, and 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 played solo. So, for those who know the movie Brassed Off, that is pretty accurate in terms of my um, childhood experiences of a of life in a brass band. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and then they're passionate about it as well, aren't they? Was it Pete Pothelswaite played the, um, the lead in that? Stunning. Yeah. Oh, it's a great film. All of that sort of came to an end and you transitioned then into the world of university in Manchester and you did environmental science and environmental technology. How did you find that transition? What was, what was behind your thinking about that as a particular focus?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really great question. I've always just been fascinated by the world around us. You know, I've always been interested in traveling. I've always been interested in how we look after the world and just the environment in which we live and and energy being part of that, particularly clean energy and and what we look at today. So I suppose the environmental science was very much driven by the fact that when I was joining university, it was a point where industry was having to face up to the legacy of some of the past, you know, in terms of some of the major incidents that had happened over the, around the world, in terms of chemical spills, oil and gas spills, um, just waste, you know, just those horrendous pictures even that we see today of of waste on river beds, and um, I think that really struck me when I was going through school and, and and it informed why I went down that road, because I felt that I wanted to do something that actually, yeah, I could travel, I could see the world, but I could kind of make a difference as well to the world that we live in. And, and doing the environmental science really helped me understand that within a industrial context. And then the technology side was like understanding the technology to help clean cleaned it all up you know um from gaseous emissions to liquid effluent to um storage of radioactive waste oddly enough at that point as well so I, it was the full full gambit and i wasn't prepared i was not prepared for university nor what it bright brung but i i loved i loved my time at university and i went back to my roots in manchester um, and in fact my first year i lived in Levenshulme, which is 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 where i was born um, and I, I love Manchester to this day, I still love Manchester, I'm a Mancunian, Mancunian at heart, I know that will divide s- some of the listeners, um, now that I live so close to Liverpool and, and elsewhere, but um, Manchester is just a great city, and, I, and obviously, you know, I think when you go to university, you get that real independence, and it, it stays with you for life, um, the friends that you make, um, just the experiences that you have, um, and I was really fortunate that, I chose a program as well um, that I could go away overseas um, for six to eight months of my my time at university, and I went to Buffalo University in upstate New York, um, and it was to look at the lakes um, uh, around, you know, Ontario and near Buffalo, Niagara, etc., to be able to look at kind of some of the pollution. And, you know, what they've been doing on the likes of Lake Erie to clean up, you know, that legacy of the past that I talk about. So all of that was about the ability to go travel, see the world as as part of, of university.
0: But it was also that it's really interesting what you say about that driver to want to make a difference, because often the choices we make are about what we find interesting. But you took it to the next stage. You did find it interesting, but you wanted to do something where you could actually make a positive difference to the world
1: you know when I um look at kind of the choices in terms of um one of the things I always say to myself is that I wish I'd become a lawyer well actually when I that was only because I used to watch LA Law and used to really like um fancy most of the blokes on it but it was just so glamorous it was so you know but really I'd have been absolutely bored out of my mind actually probably whereas um the the role I've or, or rather the career and University path that I went down got you outside of an office. It got you out into the field. You got dirty. You had to go and take samples, and you had to go and really, you know, understand what was happening in the environment. And I liked that kind of being out in the great outdoors.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic that and so. you must have grown and developed as a, as a person at, at university with all those sort of experiences and so on. And then it came to what are you going to do next? So you stayed on, you did a masters in in the same sort of field. Um, what were your sort of thought processes as you were coming to the end of that? How are you going to you know apply what you'd learned and make a difference in the world?
1: Yeah, that's um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think um, I was definitely ready to earn some money that's, I was definitely, I'd, I'd done four years of, and a little bit more of just kind of being the university, um, you know, sharing a flat and house with everybody and loving all of that, but I think I was ready to start a path and, and, and a career journey. Um, and like everybody else, you know, um, we had the graduate circuit come round and, and the big blue chip companies come and talk to us. And and actually, I had an interim period where I worked for the Environment Agency before I went into a graduate programme. And I worked for the Environment Agency at a time where they were starting to um, assign waste Um, and really understand where waste was going from and to, in terms of its consignment, from big chemical companies um, to small SMEs, et cetera. Um, And it was really great working with kind of the Environment Agency to see how that kind of an organization operates. Um, But that was only ever a stepping stone and kind of whilst I really understood, you know, where did I want to go? Um, And at that time, British Nuclear Fuels was a great, you know, blue chip British and global organization in terms of where it had gone. You know, it was in um, uh, Japan at that point. It was in the USA at that point. It was UK, um, it had the relationships with French, etc. cetera. Um, and BNFL were looking specifically for people who had degrees in environmental science that needed to come in and help them understand how they mitigate their emissions um, and mitigate kind of, you know, their impact upon the environment. New legislation had come in through integrated pollution um, control legislation and and actually they needed people that could come in and work with them not only on a radioactive basis but non-radioactive advisory roles. Um, So I put myself forward, and and obviously I I went through the whole graduate recruitment process, um, and we, yeah, I was successful, which was tremendous, and um, I got to work um, with Springfields as the first place, um, where they manufacture, obviously, the fuel for the, at that point, the Magnox reactors, but also the AGR fleet.
0: That's right. That's right. So how did it feel that sort of going, I mean, I've been through that gate many times. How did you feel on that first day going through that gate onto that site?
1: Massive trepidation. (laughs) Um, But it's a wonderful, I mean, it's a wonderfully welcoming site. I mean, I actually can remember what I was wearing the first day I walked onto that site and the building that I walked into. And, you know, they had a very established and very mature um, radiation protection advisor community, which was where I landed first within British Nuclear Fuels. And, um, uh, you know, it was great. They just welcomed me in and showed me all around the different facilities and, and, and the role that they did as the RPAs, but it was literally learning as you went, you were literally learning as you go. Um, what incredible support. Um, but yeah, I, I was wearing a long navy skirt. I can see it now, I was wearing a long navy skirt and a navy shirt that had a little blue, a little white pinstripe and a, and a kind of cream blazer. And I felt incredibly proud of myself that I'd got this far and you know. Um, but now I, I just remember that um, Springfields were just really welcoming and I have been ever since actually, they're a great team.
0: It's a great site. It's a lovely culture, isn't it there?
1: Well, it is. And, and actually, um, you know, Brian Nixon, who now leads the site, we both were peers at the same time growing up through the industry. And I, I remember meeting um, Brian and his wife, Vicky, on the first day at Springfields. And now, you know, he's the MD of the site. So I, you know, there's a, a lot of mutual respect there as well.
0: So on the graduate programme, presumably you had different experiences, you were stretched in different ways. Um, did you start to learn something about not just your passions, but where your skills were, what you were good at, what you were less good at and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it's quite interesting. I mean, I know we joked earlier about um, working in the hotel. But actually, you know, when you go onto to a site like Springfield's and, and you know, you're in a seem to be in a management position like a radiation protection advisor and you're going on to sites where you know the shift working um it's very male dominated um you know you've got to you've got to really earn your respect you know you don't just turn up on day one and and start telling everybody what they've got to do there's something about really you've got to earn that respect and build the relationships and be able to build relationships at many different levels and with many different people and you know I, I I always joke, but the hotel in a way made me more confident because I had to meet and speak to everybody and anybody. You know, I was from the house, my, my mom and dad like, you know, didn't have me all the time washing the dishes. I, I could communicate with people and I, you know, one thing that my mom and dad always taught me was never to think that you're better than the man or woman next to you, you know, and that has stayed with me forever. Um, and that's massively important. So being able to go on the shifts, and work on the shifts and show that I was willing to get my sleeves rolled up, actually was quite a defining moment for me because it showed me that I'm a real team player as well as leading teams, I'm a, I am am I want to be part of a team. And the role as a radiation protection advisor back in that day was very much um, seen as the person that stopped operations. You were the one that kind of, you know, if there was anything going awry, you stopped operations. And that really, was hard for me because it wasn't in my DNA to just tell people that's it no you know I would find a way to work with them to obviously safety first n- no doubt about that and but clearly you know there are options to explore and how do we keep the, the, the plant running because at the end of the day we've got to manufacture fuel and that keeps the lights on so how do you so so actually I, I kind of went full circle in realizing that maybe the role for me wasn't being the um uh the Gamekeeper, it was actually being part of the team and, and getting the sleeves rolled up and and I did work with the teams on the shifts to manufacture fuel for the for the reactors um, and probably the best experience I could have ever had.
0: I really like what you say there about the people side of it and what you learned in the hotel, how to relate to people, because it's one of the biggest lessons you learn, isn't it? Everyone's different, is and you mentioned different sort of roles within an organization. And that ability to come in and connect with people that you'd grown up with in the hotel, its really good to hear how that made a difference. But then the other thing you said about you almost being the enabler to work out the safe way of doing what you needed to do and not being the policeman that would stop things. So that combination of we've got to work together, we've got to find a way to do what we need to do safely. So let's work together to do that. What a fantastic combination.
1: Well, I think, I mean, I think that has been one of the key things and stayed with me throughout my career in being um, you know, collaboration is absolutely key. It doesn't matter whether you're working within your own teams, but working with clients, working across cultures. You know, I've had the privilege of working, you know, we mentioned Japan to to Europe to the USA and and, and, and everywhere in between. And And actually being able to bring those different cultures to work collaboratively as well, um, really important, I think.
0: It is. And it also brings, you know, different cultures bring diversity and different people and characters bring diversity. And actually that that ability to see a problem from lots of different perspectives with different sorts of people in a diverse community always gets a better outcome and, and tests the, the resilience of the approach that, that, that you're gonna to take to, to address a problem, you know. Really interesting. So I'm gonna take you on a couple of years and, and to this particular year you had uh, and a secondment succ- as a special assistant to to the chairman of BNFL. Tell us how that opportunity arose and what was it like?
1: Um, So it's really funny how, um. We were talking about my first day at Springfields. And on this first day, I vividly remember, and I know his name, it was a gentleman called Steve Curran, and he worked in our um kind of accountancy team, uranium accountancy team. And he said to me on my first day, we'd obviously all had conversations and stuff, and he said, You're gonna work for the chairman of BNFL. And it meant absolutely nothing to me, nothing to me. And just let you know. Five years later, I I did. Get a call from our head of hr um and he uh, said to me julianne we'd like to put you forward as the springfields nomination to go and work for the chairman of bnfl and i kind of was like really really so we joke in the industry now about the bag carrier and um but wow what an opportunity um i didn't think for one minute i was in with a chance, I, I was just pleased to even be nominated to be to be thought of in that, like you know, regard with the hate this, the Springfield's lead team, um, you know. But this is opportune an opportunity where you get to work with the executive, the senior executive of the NFL. You are there to provide all the the, the, the board papers, um, do all the kind of investig investigative work before you go and meet clients or the government or um, you know going overseas to prepare the agendas for the meetings and the itineraries. Um, but just you really do see the inner workings of an organisation like the NFL and all the internal politics that come with it um, and everything that goes on and. Um, and it was just such a privilege. And I remember, um, you know, meeting the chairman of BNFL, um, a gentleman called Sir Hugh Collum. And he was a very intimidating man, actually. He had—he was very sharp. He was quite intimidating. Um, and we had we had a really great conversation. I went to the fabulous offices in London of BNFL at the time on Buckingham Gate. And we sat in his beautiful office. It was all very apprenticeship-like, you know. And sat there, and um, and I just enjoyed the moment, um, and and I was thoroughly prepared for the session with him because um, the person who was in the role at the time, a gentleman called Chris Moore, who's still a dear friend, um, he had obviously down selected who should go for interview, and um, there was about three of us when. And actually, part of the process is you commit to appointing your successor, so you have a very fixed twelve month window. Um, I think, you know, why I was chosen was I was I I think I was going to embrace the whole thing. I mean, Hugh wanted somebody to come to London, enjoy what all of that meant in its totality and, you know, come to the city. Um, enjoy it for a year you know um, you're going to be exposed to the executive of the NFL you're going to travel the world why wouldn't you want to have a go and and I was in a position personally as well to be able to you know bring my husband at that time and um, we went down to London we got you know successful and we went to London and, and it was the best thing the best and the most opportunistic thing I've ever put my hand to but um absolutely no regrets
0: fantastic so I've got two little questions on the back of that one was were there any unusual questions or was there an unusual question that you got asked in the interview and if so what was it and the the other one was there any particular moment during that year that you look back on and and think that really summed it up for me and that made a big difference for me
1: so the, the the question was when Hugh said, would, you, would I go and make a cup of tea for him? I was like, no. I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> um, you're, you're really asking me to go back. And no, I think his question was, the question that I do think tipped it for me was around, you know, he didn't want somebody that was going to come in the week and come from the north on a train on a Monday morning and come. He wanted to see the commitment I was going to make to really taking advantage of that opportunity because it was an opportunity in its whole self, all aspects of it. Um, And he didn't want somebody that was gonna come on a Monday morning and stay in a hotel for for a week and be miserable and then go home on a Friday. He wanted everything that came with the role for that individual to really lean into it and take advantage of it so I I think because I was willing to do that and that I was throwing myself 110 percent into it then then that was you know um and I think I think to your second point the bit that sums it up for me um Hugh was a very private person he was a very personal personal person and, and um you didn't really get a lot of time for feedback and it was all very, it was quite transactional because he was a busy man, I mean he was the chairman of of a global organisation, but the little times where I got a privilege to be in his life on a different level, uh, like sitting in the back of the car just talking about the plans for a trip and 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 wanting to change where he went to eat because that was his favorite restaurant for instance and you know he he said I'm not going all that way if I'm going to go and eat I want to eat you know he was very specific but I remember we were many many miles away in Tokyo downtown Tokyo and we'd just landed and um, we'd had a day's work and then we went for a drink into a bar that he knew and we sat in the bar and he got a bottle of red wine and we just chatted like we are now Andrew and I sat there and I thought oh my god I'm in a bar in Tokyo with the chairman of BNFL that's not going to come again it's just not going to come again you know and um and god rest him you know he's he's passed away since then but um there was many people before me who did the role with him and many people came after me to do the role with him um and I think they all share similar experiences and um you know he was a gentleman at the end of the day
0: yeah they're very special those moments aren't they and precious actually because you know as as you say not many people had that opportunity and and you grasped it with both hands it was fantastic and actually the the impact when you know just looking through what what you did sort of following that it was a pivotal point for you in your career as well wasn't it because you came into the NFL as we've been talking about working in the environmental or the radiation protection advisor and the fuel production line and you came out of that role and went into the whole sort of commercial side of business so a completely different area and how did that how did you find that change
1: yeah I mean your words are absolutely right Andrea I mean it was absolutely pivotal um one of the things with those roles is the network that you get access to and I had the privilege of getting access to some of the greats in the time that I was in BNFL you know names that others may know or not but you know David Bonds or Suey and um Ian Edwards um um Brian Watson who led Sellerfield, and uh, people that I would genuinely call leaders of the industry and go to war with, I, I mean I genuinely would and what that role gave me was first of all access to those individuals, you know, I, I had to be in a position that I built a relationship with each and every one of them, that I could pick up the phone to them because he would ask me a question and expect me to have the answer. And I remember a very, a very sad day, actually, that that there was a bad incident at Sellafield. um, And I had to phone Brian Watson to to get the State of the Nation address, you know, to be able to brief Hugh. Um, And it was just your ability. And I suppose it goes back to what we talked about the hotel, your ability to pick the phone up, connect, have a conversation, but able to get, you know, the real brief to be able to go back with confidence to tell, um view of of what's happening, these are the next steps that are being taken. Because he then had to go and brief government, you know, it was a cascade of um that went down and straight back up. Um but because I invested a lot of time in building those relationships, you know, the mark marants of this world that's now, you know, led Magnox and then gone on to energy solutions, etc. You know, people that uh, I had invested time in that year to build those relationships, they have just stayed with me and changed then my opportunities thereafter because really it was up to me to choose where did I go after that that kind of year you know um and and I think that's why I I saw how the inner workings of BNFL operated and it was exciting when you started to see the commercial side of the business and that was why probably I I made that shift into more business development um you know that that side of the business Uh,
0: it's fascinating how how you know when you come into an organization you've got your view and you focus on the one part of the organization you're in but when you're lifted out of that and placed somewhere else where you get the breath all of a sudden there's a world of opportunity open to you and, and as you say you, you build these relationships with people and it's not a case i mean sometimes people sort of feel like you're using relationships but you're not it's people who you relate to and they're interested in you and they want to see you succeed and so um, it, it, it's it's more sort of natural and organic, you know, than that you know calculated sort of approach to a career development, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, and um, and and I think it it becomes more far more mutual, you know, as you know, um, because my you know others listening to this maybe as well in their career path don't underestimate the relationships you will build on a number of levels. One because one day you may work work for somebody so i'm a great believer in i know that i've worked i've had some of the next generation work for me that i'm going to work for in the future so that's one thing but equally some of the people that i did have an opportunity to work for within that year came back round, and actually opened opportunities up for me again and said actually you know Julianne, there's something over here that i really think you should go get um, and and they become Sponsors and mentors, and it builds a different relationship because they know that you can bring something different to to the debate, the discussion, and you know.
0: That's right, and they, they, yes, they understand who you are and what you bring, what you would bring to the role, and they're aware of other roles, so they, it sort of naturally opens up. So, again, I'm going to take you forward a little bit because you did leave Bnfl and you spent time in Nuvia and then Atkins and 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 so on. Um, how did you find those transitions? Because you're moving into other nuclear organisations but i'm guessing they they felt different when you were in them
1: very <laughs> very um, i mean in all honesty i left bnfl when um there was the breakup of the industry as we as we know it um you know as i said i had the privilege of working with, with that lead team and and if it wasn't for that lead team by the way we wouldn't have the likes of hinkley point c where it is now you know they were the team the lead team that kept the nuclear option open back in 2006. So for me, I have huge regard for them. So to watch then that entity and those individuals kind of all be broken up and thrown to the four corners of the world, it was like, well, I don't think I want somebody else determining my future. Um, and that was the point where I decided to actually step out into the supply chain and Nuvia was a company that I'd worked really closely with anyway it for a number of years they were they were newkem then um but they did some incredible work around uranium trading around the world and and um, you know decommissioning and um, they were looking to grow their business and i really wanted to get those hard kind of business development skills and go out and really understand how do you grow a business how do you go out and bid and position and um win and then help kind of set the teams up to deliver and 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 that was yeah it was a very different mentality to be nfl i mean you know nuvia then was a contracting um organization so very different very different um and i stayed i stayed with um Nuvia for the best part of four years and, and um, some would say timing was good or bad however way you look at it I, I, I kind of got my first kind of statutory board position um, in 2009 um, at the same time I had my first son um, so it was, it was like one of those kind of yeah let's go for this and that was tough you know the world wasn't ready for Um, the whole part-time inflexible you know leader you're you're a leader you you need to be here and visible and um, and that was tough because I didn't have a family to not be here for them as well Um, and uh, yeah yeah it did question and I did ask myself well what 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 do I want to do with this how do I want to take this forward how did
0: you manage that because I've talked to other people and, and it's It's a real tough one and a very personal one, isn't it? This balance between family, children and what can be all consuming world of work. How did you find your way through that as a family?
1: Well, well, as a family, I mean, I've got tremendous support. I mean, my husband is a teacher. So, you know, it's a choice we've made that, you know, I am the one that can travel. Um, and, and and you know, because of the nature of the role that I do, it does require me to be away from home and um, in the week, etc. And my husband was always here and we've got my parents close, thankfully, um, who are a great part of the team. Um, Yeah, absolutely. But it was really interesting because um, coming back to, you know, people who continue to be your sponsors, um, I had a conversation, a business to business meeting out of the blue with um, Brian Watson. um, And it was between Nuvia um, and Atkins at the time. And we had this meeting, uh, very formal. And that night, Brian phoned me up and he said, can I talk to you, Julianne? Um, I probably shouldn't do this, but I just want to put an offer on the table about a different proposition. And it was Atkins and and he presented, you know, the vision that Atkins had for the business through Chris Ball. Um, and it was just, it sang to me, this is an organization that's future, uh, you know, it's thinking about the future, it's encouraging, you know, it's got a real young dynamic team. Um, I was still within the YGN age group then, um, you know, and it was, it was like, wow, why wouldn't, why wouldn't I want to go and be part of that team? You know, Chris had brought in the likes of Phil Malum, who had who'd led Cape and Hurst. Um, he had Brian as an advisor. And it just felt right. And I remember, you know, Chris Ball and I laugh now. When Chris was ringing me up about, you know, um, potentially the offer and stuff, I just said to him, it's not about the money. It's about getting my life back in a way that is about having my life and being able to really drive a great career. And, um, and he would never disappointed me in that. And we found a way to, you know, support flexible working. And, and I've done that ever since. Um, I, you know, I'm probably 11 years into flexible working, and still continuing to drive a, a career that I thoroughly enjoy. But that's because people, you know, that's because people trusted me, um, and they were forward-thinking enough to to enable that.
0: So I'm going to take you back now, and I'm going to ask you, you know, what advice would you give your younger self? And I'm just imagining you. You've come down to Manchester. You're all excited to be back, you know, in Levenshulme and everything. And um, what would be your advice to the younger Julianne?
1: Now that I've got to a position where I'm far more comfortable and maybe it's mature, I think it's bring your whole self to work. And 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 the YGN as well will have heard me talk about this. Um, I didn't for probably best part of 20, well, no, 15 years of my career. And it wasn't until I really started working with Atkins that I, Um, actually settled in to bringing my whole self. Um, And I remember, you know, Chris Ball actually said to me, when you look back on your time at Atkins, I want you to know, you know, that you had fun. And I absolutely did. And I still continue to, but that's because I was able to bring my whole self. And, And previously I had very much, you know, come to work and I would leave Julianne Antrobus, the one that is fun, that's the the rally driver that plays in the brass band and goes running and does, you know, got two beautiful children and a great husband. I would have left that and I wouldn't talk about that and I wouldn't bring it to work. But having now brought my whole self to work, I'd say to anybody, don't leave half of it at the date gate when you go in through that Springfields gate. Bring it all.
0: Oh, what brilliant advice because it is about the whole person isn't it so um that's tremendous look julianne it's been lovely chatting to you thanks so much for your time
1: you too andrew let's do it again soon
0: (laughs) yes let's do that
1: all right thank you so much
0: if you've enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.